Good morning, everyone. My name is Randy Trigger. I'm a member of the teaching team here, and it's really an honor for me to be here and bring this message to you. Um, uh, we've been working uh, through the three epistles of John uh, in a series titled Living Truth. And today we're going to be looking at uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. So we'll get started. I've been walking with Christ for just over 37 years now. And there are times when I wander, uh, where I, I stray from the signposts along the path. These times aren't always obvious or they're intentional, but they are dangerous because those signposts are there for, from God to mark my path along the path that he has for me. Back in 2013, around the time of Easter, I was feeling distant from God. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. You can't really put your finger on anything. Uh, it, you can't put it into words. You just know in your spirit that something's not right. So it wasn't my first time in the desert, so I did what I've done in the past. I doubled down making sure I was going to church, I was praying, reading my Bible, uh, I was going to men's groups. I was doing all the right Christian things. I was checking all the boxes, but nothing seemed to matter. It didn't make any difference. Every day, I felt more distant and lost. One night, I woke up about 3 in the morning or so. Uh, I couldn't get back to sleep, so I went out to my recliner, and I sat, and I tried to pray. But I didn't have any words left. I, I was out. So I sat quietly, and I listened. And after some time, God spoke to me using scripture that I recognized from Revelation chapter 2. And in it, he said, I see your good works. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And suddenly I knew what the issue was. My heart had grown prideful and puffed up over the very things that I was accomplishing for God. The things that I was doing weren't wrong, they were good, but they were my works and not God's work for me. God showed me a signpost along the path that said something like, are you doing this because you love me? That experience helped me in a lot of ways. And it's a good lead-in for today's um, big idea. To be sure that we stay on the right course with God, we need to examine our hearts in light of his truth. Today's message is titled, Stay the Course. And John first takes a few verses to give encouragement to the believers, to reassure his readers that they can know that they are children of God and how they can know that they're children of God. And he does this by reminding them of truths that they already know. These truths are like signposts along the path. And any teaching that leads us away from these signposts is a lie. And that lie will lead to trouble and heartache. Let's read about this encouragement in the first few verses of today's lessons, 12 through 14. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, 
because you have overcome the evil one. I am writing to you children. I write to you children because you know the Father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. John has been reminding us at the beginning of the book of how our works must reflect our heart. But there's a tension between our flesh and God's will, his spirit. There's a, there's a tension between my desire to please Jesus and my desire to please myself. John recognizes this tug of war, and in verses 12 to 14, he uses it as an encouragement. He inserts it here as an encouragement. He reminds us of simple truths that each of us already know. He wants us to remember that we are God's children, that we struggle with our sins even though we are God's children. John reminds us that God loved us from the beginning before we ever came to know him. Before he washed us, he loved us. He sees us as his children. As a child, when you bring a picture to your heavenly father, he's not going to criticize and say, oh, you colored outside the lines. Or, gosh, uh, are you sure that sky's supposed to be dark green? <laughs> God isn't concerned with how you color. He wants to teach you how to color better. But how you color will never be a factor in how very much God loves you. He uses 12 and 13 to address three different groups of believers. He speaks to those who are young in the faith, and he calls them little children. The second group he addresses as fathers. They're the more mature, the old guys like me. The last group are the young in faith, uh, the, the young adults. Uh, they're strong, and, and, and they, they've overcome the evil one. In fact, in verse 14, he adds that. Okay, He says, because you've overcome the evil one, and then he clarifies it in verse 14 and says, because you are strong, the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Let's look at little children first. John uses little children to address all of us who are believers, everyone, uh, to reassure us that our sins have been forgiven. And they have been forgiven for his namesake. That's really key. The key foundational truth or signpost is that we are sinners and we are deserving of the just penalty of our sin, which is death. But Jesus paid that penalty on the cross. So all of our sins have been forgiven. All who call upon the name of Christ will be saved. They'll be cleansed. They'll be forgiven. And they'll begin walking with him. But that salvation is just the first step on a long journey. It's a process of work that is done in each of us, and that work is done by John. I'm sorry, by Jesus, by God. And as we read in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This good work is a process, and it is done by the Holy Spirit, bringing us step by step closer and closer 
to a full relationship with our Heavenly Father and with Jesus Christ. But that process will be complete, but that process won't be completed until the day that we stand after the resurrection in the very presence of Jesus. It's a long time. It is a work of the Holy Spirit on our heart. It is a changing of our hearts that is seen only by God. And as our heart changes, our actions will follow. This work will help us to grow from infants in Christ through young adults and finally to these mature believers that he's talking about. When I first turned my life over to Christ, he put a hunger and a thirst for his word in my heart. He did that. I couldn't get enough. I listened to all sorts of preachers on the Bible, uh, uh, pre preachers of the Bible on the radio. I, I was teased because I constantly listened to them. I read the Bible as much as I possibly could. I joined all sorts of different Bible studies. I just wanted to know more and more. There were times when the Bible stumped me, but I realized that if I was stumped, the issue was with my ability to understand and not with God's omniscience. And almost always, those areas that stumped me, almost always, God has helped me come to a point where I understand them better now. I lost my way and ended up in the desert when I began to try and change my behavior by myself. I attempted to live a right life by my own strength and my own will. The Bible calls this living by the law. The things I was attempting to do were good in themselves, but they were my works and not God's works for me. They were apart from God. The outside of me was becoming clean. The inside was becoming prideful. I had lost my first love. The reason I first came to Christ was because I came to a point where I realized I couldn't do it myself. That I needed a savior. That I wanted to walk with Jesus and to become the good soil that he could use to produce his crop, not mine. God reminded me of this truth and that helped me to get back on the right course. John's encouragement to these children is to remind them that they know the Father. A child is relatively defenseless. It relies on its father for everything. And a father, a good father, provides everything. As a young Christian, we know the Father because it's the Father who calls us to him. That's the only way that we can come to him. As a father, my duty was to raise my daughter in such a way that she went from complete dependence on me to standing on her own. So I had the responsibility of supplying all of her needs as she was growing until she could do these things herself. This happened slowly, and it was over time. And there were times where there were regressions where she slipped back. But it's okay, it didn't change my love for her. I continued on. In a similar way, when I was new in the faith, it seemed easy to me. But I realized that it was just God not giving me things I couldn't handle yet. He was supplying the things I needed. As I grew in my faith, God started giving me more responsibility. He gave me more accountability. 
He sent me tests and hurdles. He did these to help me to grow in faith, in strength, and in maturity. I had also times of growth, and there were times when I fell back into old bad behaviors. I still do. I regress. A new believer is reminded that they have a dad in heaven that is better than any dad that they could possibly know here on earth. He's just waiting for them to call out to him. And I assure you that when you call out to the Father, he will hear you and he will answer. John then switches over and he talks about the mature believers that he calls fathers. As we walk with God, the Holy Spirit begins to work on us. He begins to change us over time. Uh, we begin to grow and change. And eventually, we reach this spiritual maturity that he's referring to. But maturity isn't gained simply by growing older. Proverbs 16.31 says this, Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. And that righteousness isn't of my own power. It can only be attained by faith in God. At the end of Paul's life, he wrote a letter to the believers in Philippi. As an older, mature child of God, he wrote the following in, verses, in chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered lo the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The encouragement for the mature believer is exactly the same in both verses. It is that a reminder that they know him who was from the beginning. Look at the way Paul describes knowing Jesus. It is worth more than anything the world has to offer. It's worth more than any life experience. And in choosing Christ over all things, he wants to attain a righteousness that only comes through faith and only from God. And the ultimate goal is stated at the very end of verse 11, that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. A truly mature believer has come to agree with Paul. They continue to seek God, to know God in deeper and more personal ways. They've learned to hear God's voice, to discern his will, to understand his moving, to trust more and more in his very character. The idea of knowing God is important to grasp. This isn't just an I know about Jesus. It is knowing him relationally in a deep and personal way. As I've walked with Jesus, I've come to experience him. I've come to understand him. I've seen his provisions. Through life experiences, I've seen his leading. I know his faithfulness. I know his forgiveness and his mercy. And I also know his discipline. John is encouraging the mature believer by asking them to remember how God has been faithful to them as they walked along that path. Perhaps you're older and you're, you're wondering, have I lost my usefulness? 
You're simply not as young and strong as you used to be. But I can assure you, you haven't lost your usefulness for God. You still have work to do. It's just different. Maybe it's praying more. Maybe it's, maybe it's mentoring uh, a, a young mother or father. Perhaps it's just listening and being ears for someone who is in need. Ultimately, it is degree with Paul as he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This isn't to say that you know everything. There is always a need to grow and change. There's always a need to become more in relationship with God. As we saw in Philippians, it is an ongoing work. But John is encouraging the fathers by asking them to check and make sure that Jesus is at the very center of their heart. The final audience is a large group that has moved from spiritual infancy through childhood, and now they're young adults in the faith. The encouragement to this group is a reminder that they have overcome the evil one. But how have they overcome the evil one? They are defined further in verse 14 as being strong and having the word of God abide in them. To grow from spiritual maturity, please listen, to grow from spiritual maturity to young adulthood in the faith, it is required that the word of God abides in you. There isn't a quick, simple path for this to occur. It requires that you read, you study, you listen, you put God's word into practice. You will remember that when I was mentioned being in the desert, bleh, when I ended up being in the desert, that it was scripture that God used to remind me of a truth. He was able to use Revelation chapter 2 because I had read it and studied it and it was in my heart. It is the word of God that we use to overcome the evil one. The word of God is what overcomes the evil one. It's not me. And we need to be strong in this in order to wield it correctly. Satan is a master at twisting scripture ever so slightly to try to nullify it. One of the battles that I encountered in this group uh, occurred in late 1988 and early 1989, shortly after my wife, Therese, and I were married. I was a fairly new Christian, about four years, uh, and we felt through prayer that God was nudging us to start trusting him with our finances. Uh, specifically, we felt God telling us to give 10% as a tithe to our church. So we prayed, and uh, we considered it, and we made a commitment, a vow to God that we would begin this tithe. I'll confess and tell you that I had already been notified that I was to get a 10% raise at work so I could see God already working on the provision. Then a couple things happened. Uh, first, some things occurred that caused Therese to have to quit her job. Okay, not ideal, but we could squeeze, we could make it happen. The second thing is I got called into my boss's office. It was to notify me that that raise had been canceled. Ouch. The battle had begun. Did we trust God and believe that he led us when he told us to give? 
Did we trust that God would be able to provide even when we didn't see how? Would we be faithful and obedient and keep our commitment? It wasn't easy. We used a budget back then. And quite frankly, our income was way below the outgo. But we prayed, and we gave it to God, and we gave, and then we waited for him to work. And God did work. For better, for worse, we didn't tell anyone of our dilemma. We left it completely in God's hands. And God showed his faithfulness and provision in ways too many to explain here, way too many. But we had meals that were given to us out of the blue. We had money that came from unexpected sources. And our dollars, they seemed to stretch somehow to meet our needs. The battle was to trust our eyes and our ability or to trust God and his. After six months, I was called back into my boss's office. He told me that he had canceled the raise because he wanted to give me a better one. But he didn't tell me because he wasn't sure he would be able to get it. The new raise covered the original 10%. The new raise covered my tithe. And the new raise covered the lost wages from Teresa's job. That number was $10, was within $10 of our original budgeted amount from six months previous. I'll be honest, I was excited to get that raise. But that was not the true blessing. Mm -mm. The real blessing was that we learned to trust God. We saw that God was able to provide. We grew in ways that are hard, if not impossible, to measure. John's encouragement to the young adult believers is to stay strong by growing more and more in God's word. There is strength that is developed as we read and put his word into practice. Each of the groups is encouraged to check their heart for what they know is true. We've had our sins forgiven and have eternal life because of the very name of Jesus and what he did on the cross. We have strength to overcome the evil one because we have God's word abiding in our heart. And we know Jesus more and more as we walk with him. We return to the big idea for today, to be sure that we stay on the right course with God, we need to examine our heart in light of his truth. And this examination of the heart begins with our first challenge question. Which of these three groups describe you? And are you growing in that group? Which of these three groups describe you? There isn't any bravo or shame involved here. It is simply a check. There are, these are broad groupings. There's much growth in each of them. The idea is to be encouraged that you are in one of these three groups and that in being one, you are a much beloved child of God. You have royalty in your hearts. Lift up your eyes and your hearts and see the love that the Father has for you. That's the encouragement. John now pivots in verse 15, and he reminds the believer that the true test is found in the, of your love is found in the object of your love. That's the true test. It is a challenge and an exhortation in this verse, and it's very clear 
do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John is always urging us to love God and love one another. This is the one place where he says, do not love, and is to not love the world or the things of the world, which begs the question, to which, what is the world to which he's referring? I found this quote from C.J. Vaughn in reference to this. The world is nature's heaven. It is a carnal copy of a spiritual joy. It is a figment which he who is the prince of sets up, whereby indulging our senses or pleasing our imaginations or gratifying our vanity, he makes us rest in happiness which imitates heaven but is not heaven because it wants the essence of heaven. It has not God. The language of the quote is old. It can be difficult to completely understand. But he's saying that our physical world is fallen and broken, and it's full of evil because it's under the influence of Satan. It attempts to copy heaven and give you something like spiritual joy, but it's an illusion, and the illusion is designed to please the lust of your eyes, to please the lust of your flesh, and to puff you up, to give you pride. It gives you a temporary happiness, but it's empty because it doesn't have God in it. In his gospel, Matthew tells the story of the temptation of Jesus by Satan. There are three specific temptations, and they correlate pretty well with these three areas. Uh, Jesus was tempted to turn stone to bread, lust of the flesh, temptations. The second one was to throw himself I'm sorry, the second one uh, was to exchange all, to bow down for Satan in exchange for all that he could see in the world, lust of the eyes. And the third one was to throw himself off a cliff and trust the angels to lift him up. And that's pride in himself apart from the Father. Jesus recognized each of these temptations as empty illusions that were designed to draw him away from his Father. And he fought back by reminding Satan that they were a lie. And they were a lie because the Father was not in them. He knew that his heavenly Father could give him every one of those things with no strings attached. The Father gives freely because the Father loves you. John breaks the love of the world into three main groups. First is that which makes me feel good. And it can be seen as uh, those things that are either necessary for living or that make living easier. In and of themselves, they are not sinful. Bread for a man that's been fasting for 40 days in the desert is not bad. But the temptation for Jesus was to supply it for himself, not relying on his father to supply his need. Most of us really don't struggle with having enough food to eat or shelter or clothing. Our temptation in this area is probably one more of gluttony. The second is that which appeals to me. Uh, it is those things that you can have in life that aren't really necessary, but boy, they're sure nice to have. Uh, but when is enough enough? We live in a consumer-driven society. If we need something, for most ideas, we can just go out and buy it. Apple CEO Steve Jobs 
announced the first generation iPhone on January 7th, 2007. The latest one, version 13, was announced September 14th, 2021, just this last fall. And how many of us ha just have to have the latest and the greatest, even if the one that we currently have is just fine? This is just one example. And I'm not against upgrading. I'm really not. I'm asking if we put more thought and energy into the latest and greatest than we do in our relationship with Jesus Christ. The final group is uh, that which puffs oneself up. It's to do things outside the command and will of God, to get ahead of the Father and the things he has for you, to take them into your own hands. This is a, a, a sin of pride. This sin of pride, this puffing up, is the thing that is closest to the reason for my season in the desert. I was doing a lot of good things at my church then, and I was getting a lot of really good feedback. It went to my head, and my heart began to puff up and lose the humility that would have reminded me of my position as a child of God. In all these things, we need to remember that it's not the thing that is sinful. Only your heart can be sinful. And the only way that we can truly check our heart is to ask God for help to do it. David is described in the Bible as a friend of God and as a man after God's own heart. And as we heard in the last sermon series, David is also uh, a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. He wrote Psalm 139, and in it we find the way in which he asked God to help him search his heart. Verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there's any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. The best way of getting an evaluation of yourself in any area is to ask someone to do it for you. You're going to get a truer uh, reading. In the case of your heart, the only one that can judge it in truth is God himself. On our own, we can believe that we've done something that is deserving of condemnation. But Jesus paid for all sins. He paid for the smallest and the largest. If you're feeling condemned, you need to go back to 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sin, no matter how large, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you. On the other side, we can justify it and say, eh, it's really no big deal. But a sin is a sin, and all sin needs to be confessed. If you confess it, he is faithful to forgive you. This leads me to my second challenge question. Are you regularly asking God to search your heart and to evaluate it in light of, do I love God or the world? So we have the challenge, do we love God or do we love the world and all the things of the world? John wraps up this section with a reminder of the consequences of the heart challenge in verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Quite simply, the choice is between things that are temporary and going away and eternal life with God. If we're honest, we can see that this is true. That new iPhone 13, it's going to be old news in about a year, maybe less. Sometimes I go to estate sales because I can find really good bargains there. But often I'm reminded that the reason for the estate sale 
is because the owner has died and left everything behind. The only thing that they took with them was the answer to this challenge, heart challenge. Do you love the world or do you love God? It's the only thing they took with them. This letter is written to believers. But if you're not a believer, you can also take the heart challenge. Uh, If you realize that chasing after the things of the world has left you feeling empty, uh, you have a gnawing sense that something's missing, there's a hole, it doesn't satisfy you, then allow me to introduce you to the one that can satisfy your hunger and your thirst, and he can do it for eternity. His name is Jesus. We were created to live in eternity with God. But we messed it up. Started in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve choosing things of the world. And the penalty for choosing things of the world is death. Their choice caused all of creation to fall into uh, brokenness. And we ended up lost without God. God did this because his character is both completely loving and completely just. As I said, the just consequences for our choosing the world is death. But God is merciful, he's gracious, he's loving, and he is completely committed to restoring his relationship with you. He did this by sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come here and live a perfect life that we could not do on our own. He then paid the penalty, the just penalty for our sin by suffering and dying on the cross. And then he rose from the dead, proving that he is greater than death. The, the, uh, his offer for us is simply to accept his payment for our sin in full. It's paid. The instant that we do this, we become a child of God. We know this because the truth of John that he told us in verse 12. Again, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. We're going to take a few moments, and I'd like you to consider the challenge. If you don't know Jesus, then now is a perfect time to simply ask him to be your savior, to forgive all your sins, and his answer to you is going to be a resounding yes. In fact, if you give your life to Christ, then all the angels in heaven will be rejoicing with you. Please close your eyes for a moment. Bow your head. Ask yourself this question. Do you know your sins are forgiven? If not, then you can know right now by simply confessing your need and asking Jesus for his forgiveness. You can pray along with me if you like. Father God, I come to you and admit that I'm a sinner in need of salvation. I'm tired of chasing after the things of this world. I want Jesus to be my savior. I give you my life and ask you to help me as I begin a new walk with you. I thank you for your forgiveness, your cleansing, 
and most of all, your love. In Jesus' name, amen. You can open your eyes now. If you did ask Jesus to be your Savior, please let us know. We want to rejoice with you, and we also want to come along with you on your new walk. To continue to grow in our relationship with God, we must learn to choose Jesus and love him more than anything that this world has to offer. And we can use the two challenges, two challenge questions, to help us in this area. First, which of the three groups do you see yourself in? Little child, young adult, mature believer. And are you actively growing in that area? Are you seeking to move into the next group? And finally, are you regularly asking God to search your heart, evaluating it in light of, do I love God or the world? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you again this morning, and we praise you again for your love and for your mercy. We praise you for the ability that we have to lift our voices as inadequate as they are, but you love it, and you love us. And we thank you for that. Father, we thank you for your assurance that our sins are forgiven, that, that we have your word abiding us. We can overcome the evil one. And Father, that we are growing to spiritual maturity in your time and in your way. And we thank you, Lord, that you help us to understand the things of the world, that we may always choose you. Help us, Jesus. We can't do it on our own. We need you. Father, we ask that you bless the rest of this time that we have together. Help us to follow you and seek you in all that we do. We love you, Jesus. And in your name we pray. Amen.